Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Between 1914 and 1916, Portugal walked a delicate line. While actively engaged in an undeclared war with Germany in Africa, Portugal was not a combatant in Europe, nor did it officially declare neutrality. It stayed out of the war, but it provided support in a variety of ways to Britain, its historical ally. Britain hoped to maintain this arrangement for the duration of the war. In contrast, the Portuguese government was anxious to join the war. In March 1916, it got its way. By 1917, the Portuguese Expeditionary Corps was fighting in France. In the decades following World War I, the dominant trend in scholarship was to view the Portuguese Expeditionary Corps, or CEP, as incapable and even cowardly. More recent scholarship provides a more balanced picture of the CEP. And today we're going to focus on Portugal and the CEP in World War I, and our subject matter expert is Dr. Jesse Piles. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation, Amanda. I appreciate being here. So tell us a little bit about Portugal in the decade or so leading up to World War I. What does it look like demographically, economically, and politically? Well, demographically, Lisbon and Porto and a few other regional centers were home to about a quarter of the Portuguese population. More than half of Portuguese lived in villages and rural communities. Also, well more than half, about 75%, perhaps 80%, were illiterate or functionally illiterate. And uh, that is significant in terms of the demographics of the country, in terms of thought. Economically, there were two Portugals, which was also true of Britain at the time. One was the center of a global empire with significant colonial interest in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere. The other was militarily and in terms of sovereignty dependent upon Britain, poor and reliant on imports. Politically, Portugal was fractured. The king had been assassinated in 1908 and a republic declared in 1910. Republicans held a tenuous grasp on power. Monarchists, socialists, and anarchists, among other factions, vied for political power with Republicans and with other political organizations. Portugal's relationship with Britain is complicated. Can you tell us about this relationship and then outline the role that it plays in Portugal's liminal status leading up to March 1916? The two countries share the longest alliance in European history which formally dates to the 1386 Treaty of Windsor. During the 17th century, after the Restoration, when Portugal became a country again, having been annexed by Spain for 60 years from 1580 until 1640, Portugal offered largely unrestricted access to English merchant and naval vessels to most of its ports around the globe in return for England guaranteeing Portugal's sovereignty on the continent. By the 1703 Treaty of Muthen, Portugal, to a significant extent, became a client state of England. England regularly exploited its dependent ally. Occasionally, Portugal held advantages that resulted in more favorable diplomatic and political outcomes. Now, the World War I History Podcast has covered the participation of other small and medium-sized powers, nations, colonies in World War I. 
relationships with larger states are usually credited with drawing them into the war. But as we've found, many of those smaller states exercised far more agency than they've been given credit for. Many of them saw a benefit to joining the conflict. Why does Portugal want to be involved in World War I? The simplest answer to this is the reasons why the Republican Party wanted to be involved in the war, because they were the political party in power, and they were not welcoming of any other political party. So their three reasons, which is generally held across scholarship, especially Portuguese scholarship, are uh, political leaders were consistently concerned about Portugal's reliance upon Britain as the guarantor of its sovereignty, particularly regarding Spanish aggression. And this is very significant because since the restoration of the mid-17th century, Spain still strongly coveted Portugal, and um, the British knew it even up leading up to World War I. Um, Winston Churchill, for example, actually had campaigned in the British government when he was Lord of the Admiralty to uh, discontinue the alliance with Portugal, let Spain invade Portugal, and then make an alliance with Spain, which would get access to all of Portugal's ports back again. That way, uh, Britain could continue to use them, but under Spanish control instead of Portuguese. So that was a consistent fear across all political parties, but it was also the Republicans. But the two are more specific. The Republican leaders, they held a very, very tenuous grasp on political power in Portugal, and they feared losing even more power by Britain playing heavy-handed tactics with political and uh, imperial affairs, which is the best-known example in the late 19th century is what's called the Affair of the Pink Map or the Affair of the Rose-Colored Map, in which Portugal uh, campaigned very strongly to connect Mozambique and Angola and uh, received permission from all the other countries who had political and imperial interests in Africa. And then Britain randomly revoked that and forced Portugal to withdraw its request, which led to significant loss of prestige. Uh, and uh, there were some also some heavy-handed tactics that Britain used in uh, imperial affairs with Portugal, leading right up to World War One, especially in 1911 and 1913. And then Republican leaders really wanted to stabilize their political hold on power by gaining favor of the free world. Um, their political system was very much aligned with what they perceived to be a modern version of France's government, even though they were Britain's long-term ally. And so they wanted to gain recognition as not a country that was massively upheaved, but as a country that was stalwart and reliable and could gain recognition by serving as Britain's ally alongside Britain's forces fighting against German forces in France. 1916 is a costly year for the Allies, particularly in terms of manpower and munitions. Does this help facilitate Portugal's entry into the war? Manpower, not so much. As strange as that sounds, there's a comparison that always seems fitting. About 55,000 British soldiers were casualties on the first day of the Somme, and the entire Portuguese corps never exceeded about 60,000 men. So in terms of manpower, those 55,000 casualties that Britain suffered in one day were the equivalent, roughly, 
of all the men that Portugal ever sent to fight in France. So that's a question of scale right there. So Portugal could never really mobilize more than that. So manpower was not a significant factor in bringing Portugal into the war. Munitions, however, were in the early fighting, in the early years of fighting, especially in 1914, France was bearing the brunt of the German offensive. And they had previously, before the war began, sold a bunch of field artillery to the Portuguese government, and they had lost a significant amount of their artillery. And they asked Britain, who they knew was Portugal's ally, to buy back those guns that they had sold to Portugal. And uh, Portugal said, sure, we'll sell them back at a discounted rate, but we want to get into the war. And uh, Portugal and France agreed. The Portuguese were not prepared to get into the war straight away. So they sent the guns and then Britain revoked the agreement to bring Portugal into the war by returning the guns to France. So, but in late 1915, Britain's naval vessels, its shipping vessels, had lost heavily by the because of the war in the Atlantic, and they needed shipping tonnage. Um, and they noticed there were about 70 German vessels stationed in Lisbon and Oporto's harbors, which were under what was an undeclared neutrality. They were seeking protection under Portugal's undeclared neutrality. And so uh, British diplomats began to question the Portuguese government about requisitioning those vessels. And Portuguese government did the same thing, which was, we'll requisition the ships if you invite us into the war. And uh, it's a complicated matter because Britain wanted to avoid being implicated in the fact that they were inviting the Portuguese to steal the German ships, um, but they couldn't avoid it. So they actually extended the offer again for Portugal to join the war on the Western Front in return for requisitioning the German ships. And Portugal did that, which enraged Germany, and Germany declared war. Wow, that's such an interesting route into the war. How prepared is Portugal for war, and how popular is the war with the Portuguese people? Portugal is not at all prepared for war. That's just um, a simple fact, and it tends to be overstated by both Anglophone and Lusophone scholarship. And the reason why it tends to be overstated is that, in, in my estimation, no country was prepared for the Great War. They claim they were, but their preparedness, their alleged preparedness, was based on flawed assumptions about a short war and ideological precepts related to just war theory and the like. So was Portugal prepared for war? No. Was Britain prepared for war? No. Was France or Germany or Russia? No. Is it a matter of scale? Perhaps. But that fact that Portugal wasn't prepared for war tends to cause some scholars to create an exception for Portugal as having been not ready and the assumption being that France and Britain and Germany and Russia and Austria were ready. Uh, I don't believe that to be the case at all. Now, as far as how popular was the war with the Portuguese people, the first answer here needs to go back to the fact that 75 to 80 percent of the Portuguese population were illiterate or functionally illiterate. So uh, one Portuguese scholar, for example, wrote that uh, the great majority of those illiterate, which was the great majority of the nation, didn't understand politics in Europe. They knew there was a war. They didn't even know who was fighting, and they didn't know why they were fighting. 
So in terms of how popular was the war with the Portuguese people, you really have to weigh heavily that 75 to 80 percent illiteracy into that connotation. So then you're left with somewhere on the order of only one fifth to one quarter of the Portuguese population who actually has an understanding of politics in Europe and the war and who's fighting and why they're fighting. So a lot of Portuguese and some English speaking scholars have written extensively about the topic of the war's popularity, but really their sample size is only about one quarter at most of the entire Portuguese population. And almost all of that statistical information comes from Lisbon and Oporto and a few other regional centers. And then you have to factor in that those were the literate people, and a lot of them were Republican or monarchist or socialist or anarchists who did not really understand. They, they thought differently than the Portuguese who were not part of those political parties. So was the war popular? That is an incredibly difficult question to answer because the sample size is so small. And then then you have to take, for example, like the monarchist might have been interested in the war for different reasons than the Republicans were interested in the war. And the anarchists might have had different reasons than the Republicans or the monarchists. And the socialists might have had different reasons than those parties. So there was some interest in the war, yes. But the main thing to bear in mind in terms of popularity is that the great majority of the soldiers were drawn from that illiterate or functionally illiterate population. And even though they may not have wanted to be drafted, may not have wanted to be conscripted, they had an expectation of military service that was traditional, dating as far back as their family's history. So it's a really, really difficult question to ask. And I have never seen enough data that takes the entire Portuguese population into consideration to offer a fixed, definitive answer to how popular was the war in Portugal. That's very interesting. And it kind of leads me into another question. Tell us about the mobilization and the composition of the CEP. The Portuguese government decided that no expense would be spared to make an impression on the Allies, especially Britain and France to a lesser extent. So what they did was they called various units from the standing army and they, as a cadre, for forming what was called the instruction division. And they uh, created a camp, a training camp, in the interior of Portugal in a town called Tuncos. And then that's where the conscripts and the volunteers were brought in to train. So they had experienced soldiers who formed the cadre of an instruction division. And the instruction division was, once it was complete, was somewhere between 25,000 and 28,000 men. So this was a very large division, largely roughly the size of the American divisions who would later fight in France. So they had experienced soldiers, uh, many of whom had served in Africa, um, fighting the wars there or in other small wars that Portugal may have been involved in or other small military actions, uh, imperial actions, for lack of a better description. But a number of experienced officers, a number of experienced non-commissioned officers, and a number of corporals and experienced soldiers. And then they filled out the ranks with a significant amount of junior officers, many of whom were Republican. And then I've seen statistics 
from Portuguese scholars that estimate that 48% to 70% of all the Portuguese drafts who filled out the instruction division ranks were actually illiterate. And so it depends on what the what the scholar calls illiterate, whether it's functionally illiterate. Uh, the basic working was that the non-commissioned officers, for example, generally had to have some literacy and they had been in the army for a while. So they knew enough to uh, to read and write and and things like that. But uh, so there was a standing army. Most of the senior officers, most of the company, most of the field rank officers were monarchists. Most of the junior officers were Republican or from some other uh, political affiliation. When and where do they enter the line? And can you tell us about the sector that they serve in? The Portuguese were assigned to what was regarded as they were assigned a defensive role. Field Marshal Douglas Haig wrote to the war office when he learned that the Portuguese Corps would serve with the British. He assigned them a defensive role, said specifically, we're going to put them in a place in the line where they will defend the line. We don't expect any heavy attacks because the place was very, very wet. It was in the Lees River Basin in the north of France, about 15 to 20 miles west-southwest of Lille, so very near the Belgian border in a very, very flat piece of land, which uh, had been, at least in part, reclaimed from the sea some long term beforehand. It was climatologically wet. It was very difficult to build and maintain any kind of trench system because of the mud, because of the flatness, because of the slow drainage. And that is why it was regarded as a safe sector, not so much because there wasn't strategic importance around it, which namely was the town of Hasbrook, which is a, a railhead and supply depot for the British First and Second Armies. But the thought being that no major offensive could be launched there because of the flatness, the wetness, the mud, which would bog down any operation. What had happened, however, was the winter of 1917-1918, and the early spring had been exceptionally dry. And the British didn't really notice, but the Germans did. Now, I think you've already alluded to this a little bit, but how is the CEP viewed by the British and then by the French? For the British, that's really, really complicated. Um, they were a long-term ally, absolutely. And the British regarded them and spoke of them as our ancient ally. That was the term used, our ancient ally. But um, military history, traditional military history, tends not to take into account that even in the 21st century, our modern understanding of race dates to the uh, Victorian and Edwardian Britons. And they regarded the Portuguese as inferior, degenerate, indolent. There is a striking amount of literature that regards them as a dark-colored and degenerate race, direct quotes, well-stocked with cunning and deceit, another direct quote. So they regarded them as truly racially and culturally inferior, not only to British themselves, but to most other Europeans. Um, it didn't bode well for relations whatsoever in the Anglo-Portuguese alliance during the war. The French appear to have been marginally, somewhat curiously, and certainly patronizingly amused 
by Portugal's entry into the European war. There were some French officials and soldiers who suggested that uh, the Portuguese would serve with France, even though they were British allies. But the Portuguese government did not give that any traction whatsoever. And to uh, gain what they wanted, they wanted their soldiers to serve alongside the British expeditionary force. The Germans regarded them as any other adversary. And I know that that might be a difficult pill to swallow based on the historical interpretation of the Portuguese as incapable, inferior, cowardly. But there's no evidence whatsoever, despite many allegations to the contrary, that the Germans regarded the Portuguese as less than any other adversary that they were fighting on either front in Europe. The CEP spends about a year at the front. Tell us about this service. This goes very, very understated in both Portuguese and English language histories. Technically, the Lees River Basin was regarded as a safe sector, but it was regarded as a safe safe sector simply because major operations were not possible except in the summer months. But as far as hostilities, it was just about as violent as any other part of the front that is known for its violence, for example, around Ypres. So the Portuguese um, fought in a large number of significant trench raids, which are, you know, small set piece battles, uh, somewhere on the order of 10 to 12 of them. Uh, At least three or four were led by German assault troops. The Portuguese raided the German lines. Um, They sustained casualties. They inflicted casualties. Um, They yielded very few prisoners. Um, The highest number of prisoners prior to uh, the Battle of the Lees stands at 358 total soldiers in 14 months of warfare with heavy action and heavy engagement on both sides. So it kind of just that alone tells against the fact that uh, the Portuguese were inferior or incapable. And it also tells against the fact that the definition of a safe sector, it's assumed that, okay, there wasn't much action there. Well, there wasn't much action in terms of major offensive operations, but there was considerable action of testing out and pushing back and forth against trenches and engaging in raids and bombardments of gas and high explosive. On April 9th, 1918, the Battle of Lees begins. Can you give us an outline of the classic British account of the battle? So the classic British account of the battle is strikingly distorted. The British account creates an exceptionalism for the Portuguese. One of my major arguments is that to evaluate how the Portuguese fought, we need to evaluate how the British fought on 21 March in Operation Michael, which uh, in which uh, the British divisions defending the front line were overrun and destroyed as quickly or quicker than the second Portuguese division was overrun and destroyed in the Lees battle. And that's one thing that I've noticed that is terribly not, it's a, it's a comparison that isn't made, but absolutely should be. For example, on 21 March, on the 50 mile front that the Germans attacked on, Within 45 minutes to an hour, the British had lost about a fifth 
of all the forces defending simply because the heavy artillery bombardment, which destroyed the Trump's trench systems and allowed the Germans to penetrate the British front and take many, many of them prisoners of war. So the stalwart resistance to the German offensive began in what was described as the battle zone, which was about three miles behind the front, depending on where they were in the line. So instead of this exceptionalism that claims that the Battle of the Lees went differently because a Portuguese division was holding the sector, we need to look more broadly at, for example, the estimate of 47 British battalions being completely put out of action within an hour and 15 minutes of the German offensive at Michael. And when we consider that, then we see a very, very similar pattern developing on a much smaller front but with the Portuguese and British defending the Lee sector. So another reason why the Portuguese, the British created this narrative is because they had lost so heavily at Michael. And it was really the French who came to their aid on uh, the, the attack of 21 March. Within By the 26th of March, if I'm recalling correctly, the French had already sent 21 divisions into the British sector to help shore up the defenses and help blunt the German advance. So there was a 19 days later, the Germans attacked again at the Battle of the Lees. And um, when they attacked on 21 March, there were only British soldiers the whole way. But when they attacked on 9 April on the Lees, there was a Portuguese division right in the middle of the line. So Haig, uh, First Army Commander Henry Horn, and 11th Corps Commander RCB Haking created a narrative that the Germans attacked the Lee's sector because the Portuguese held it. And they attacked it there because they regarded the Portuguese as a soft target. And as soon as they attacked the Portuguese, the Portuguese ran along the seven-mile-long front that they were holding. And that running, that alleged flight, all the way to the sea, direct quote, is what allowed the Germans to penetrate the British First Army front, which was Horn's army, and attack the British divisions on the flanks, in on the sides in the flanks, which explained why the battle did not go well for the British First Army. So there's this narrative of exceptionalism that completely excludes the way the attack developed at Michael from the way the attack was executed and developed at Georgette. But in reality, even though Georgette was a much smaller scale, it was more concentrated. I believe 76 British divisions attacked at Michael on a 50-mile front, and 14 divisions attacked at Georgette on roughly a 10, or the Battle of the Lees, Georgette, attacked on a 10 or 11-mile front on the first day. And the bombardment at the Battle of the Lees was heavier with heavier caliber guns than it had been at Michael as well. And then Haig wrote in his diary, the Portuguese troops with their Portuguese officers are useless for this class of fighting. And that's kind of that great indicator of that decontextualized exceptionalism about the Battle of the Lees. But if we look at the British soldiers defending at Michael on the front, uh, we would have to impartially also evaluate them as useless by Haig's standards. I thought that was a very interesting part of your research. So again, I think you've already begun to allude to some of this, but give us your assessment of the battle and of the conduct of the Portuguese. So this is really, really simple. First off, shells fell twice as densely 
on the Lee's battlefield than they had on the Michael battlefield of 21 March. And that is a grossly understated element of this battle. And I think what happens is authors look at the fact that there were 66 or 6,700 German guns firing at Michael and only about 1,700 firing on the Lees. But there's that those 6,700 guns at Michael were on a 50 mile front. The 1,700 guns on the Lees were on a 10 or 11 mile front. About 39% of the guns fired at Michael were of heavy caliber. About 47% were of heavy caliber on the Lees. And about the Germans fired about 3.2 million shells on the first day at Michael, but they fired 1.4 million shells on the first day at Georgette on a 10 to 11 mile wide front. So in broad terms, shells fell twice as densely on the Lee's battlefield and in heavier caliber than they had fallen during Michael. So that has to be considered in any evaluation whatsoever, and that goes unstated or overlooked in any other place, I, any other source I have ever read. So the assessment is the Portuguese performed no worse than any British division holding the front line, not reserve divisions, but British divisions holding the front lines when the Germans attacked at Michael or when they attacked on the Lees, which is Georgette. So, and then the other thing that goes unstated about this battle is that the Germans attacked only the south or right flank of the 40th division, which was, was on the left flank, the north side of the Portuguese. So some of the narrative actually is based on the left flank of the 40th division away from the attack. And there's a narrative for them because they weren't attacked frontally at all. And that tends to go understated, whereas the right brigade, the right of the division, the south flank of the 40th division on the left flank, the north flank of the Portuguese, was bombarded in the same ratio of strength and attacked roughly in the same ratio of strength as the Portuguese were. And um, that division was overrun and destroyed at the same times that the Portuguese were. So there is this narrative that the Germans attacked the Portuguese before they attacked the British on the flanks. That is absolutely untrue. Uh, Haig created that narrative to justify the destruction of his forces by blaming the Portuguese. But uh, the bombardment went from 4.15 in the morning until 8.15. It targeted the right front of the 40th Division and all of the Portuguese heavily. On the southern flank, the 55th Division, it was that bombardment, the British records, the combat records for that division describe the bombardment as desultory and slight. So that was an entirely different experience. So what we have is the British 40th Division right front being attacked, being bombarded and attacked in the same ratio of strength as the 2nd Portuguese Division, because both of those, the right of the 40th and all of the Portuguese, were in the very flat Lees River Basin. The 55th Division was on the high ground on the southern end of the basin. And that division, so the, the Germans attacked the 40th Right Brigade and all of the 2nd Division with 12 or 13 divisions. And they attacked the 55th on the south on the high ground with just one. So there tends to be a narrative, both of the left brigade, the left flank of the 40th Division, which was not attacked frontally, and a narrative of the south flank of the Portuguese, the right, 
that the British 55th Division was attacked heavily, but it was attacked by only one division. And the purpose of that division was to push the left, push the Portuguese, I mean, push the British 55th Division against the north bank of the uh, La Baz Canal, in which they succeeded. So we have this terribly misleading narrative about the 121st or right slash north brigade of the 40th division, which was not attacked frontally. And we have this misleading narrative of the 55th division, which was attacked by only one division as the dominant narrative. But what really happened was the right flank of the 40th division and all of the second Portuguese were in the flat basin. They were bombarded much heavier and attacked much heavier, and they were overrun at the same equal times. And so and all of the attack was directed to the northwest towards Hasbrook, which was the supply depot and railhead that provided all of everything that the British first and second armies needed. And it was as vital or more vital to the first and second British armies in the north as Amiens had been to the third and fifth armies in the south. And the difference being in the south for third and fifth armies, there was a lot more room to retreat and maneuver, whereas in the north, there was not very much room to retreat and maneuver before the British hit the coast. And the attack was driving to the northwest towards Hasbrook and not straight west. So there's a narrative with the 55th Division on the south flank that the Germans were trying to cross the uh, La Baz Canal, which is untrue. That action was simply a holding action and nothing more. What happens to the CEP after the battle? They are blamed completely on the very day of the battle, as early as 1040 that morning, before any Briton had any idea what had happened to the 2nd Portuguese Division and the 40th Division's right, they were already sending information to London, stating that the Portuguese had thrown down their guns and ran, which allowed the British 1st Army's front to be penetrated and Basically, the British government bought the story, the British army bought the story, the British public bought the story, and that is the story that has been repeated. British combat records established that no British officer had any idea what had happened, both to the 2nd Portuguese Division's front and the 40th Division's right brigade, both of which were overrun and destroyed by 11 or 12 that morning. The first report of the battle came out on the 12th of April. Whereas Haig was already creating a narrative sent to the war office in London by 1040, blaming the Portuguese. So it was an incredibly bad and unjust press. So the Portuguese are marginalized, they're blamed, and they are essentially and effectively treated as laborers from that point forward. And there is a certain shame that is heaped upon them for being responsible. Henry Horn, 1st Army commander, famously quipped after the battle that the Portuguese are only fit for digging. Do we know how many casualties the CEP suffered overall in World War I? We know generally. Um, the records in Lisbon have been, for many years after the war, constantly updated and changed. That type of bombardment literally obliterated human beings. And then there's a difficulty in figuring out who was missing, who was buried, who was where. Um, in general, there were about 20,000 Portuguese serving on the Lee's battlefield when the Germans attacked. There had been 55,000, but most of the men were withdrawn, and that one division spread out over seven miles to defend the entire line. 
But in broad terms, throughout the Portuguese Corps' service on the Western Front, about 2,000 to 2,300 were killed, and about 78% of those were combat-related. More than 5,000 were wounded, and about 90% of those were combat-related. And about 7,700 prisoners were taken. That number could be something between 7,300 and 8,000 but only about 350 were taken prior to the Battle of the Lees in 14 months of combat. So it's uh, those are the best estimates. And about, for example, the estimates of killed in action on the Lees battlefield range from 300 to just underneath 1,000. And that number kind of correlates to the number of prisoners of war, which ranges between 6,800 and 7,700 the Battle of the Lees and kind of the disparity between 3,000 killed to 1,000 killed and 6,800 to 7,700 prisoners of war. There's a correlation there that implies that the higher number of killed in action might be um, more accurate. And somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 were wounded and at least 300 Portuguese soldiers died as German prisoners of war. Statistically, that really seems to be evidence of a very active experience on the Western Front, kind of in some ways similar, if not worse, to other units in in other sectors. Final thoughts. What does Portugal gain by its participation in World War I? Well, practically nothing. Portugal was awarded, if I recall correctly, about 0.75% of the German indemnity but they were paid very little of that. While Portugal, while the Portuguese were fighting in France, two Portuguese governments collapsed and were rebuilt. The Portuguese president was assassinated at the end of 1918, which um, created upheaval and led to very discombobulated negotiations and the peace settlings. So Portugal gained nothing and risked practically everything. But I think, again, here we could draw a comparison to recent scholarship about the British, which fairly objectively states that whatever one holds about empire, World War I is what lost Britain its empire. It's what lost it its its power. That's where the British Empire really began to fade and collapse, frankly, by the end of World War II. So even though Portugal was a much smaller country, it did have a large empire, um, and it gained practically nothing other than having participated on the winning side, uh, loosely interpreted, in terms of when you lose that much, did you really win? And that's kind of a similar argument that certain British scholarship follows. When you lose that much, when you lose that many men, when you lose your political imperial power, what did you really win? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Piles, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciated the invite and the opportunity to speak on this topic. It's been very interesting to be involved in the research and understanding the narratives from both the uh, English language side and the Portuguese language side. I very much appreciate yours and your organization's interest and the ability to speak today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.